In 2012, Robert Zemeckis uh, directed a movie that was labeled Flight. And I find that the title of the movie is kind of a misnomer, especially the advertising of the movie. It's Denzel Washington, and the cover has him in his flight outfit as a captain of an airplane. The trailer of the movie shows kind of footage of um, a plane and things like that. You would think the movie is about flying. But an hour, an hour and a half into the movie, you realize it's not really about flying at all. Instead, it's a two-hour movie about someone running from their sin. If I had to title the movie, I would have done something different than flight. I would have labeled it Finding True Repentance. It's an interesting thing in this movie. At the end, I had this rejoicing. Rejoicing that the protagonist of the movie was in prison. And then he actually verbalized this rejoicing too. The character... Denzel Washington played, he said this to a bunch of fellow inmates. He says, it's silly hearing from someone locked up in prison that for the first time in my life, I am free. You know, when you read the epistles, it can sometimes be a misnomer, just the word epistle. The very genre has a feeling of theological treaties. The fact is, when you read 2 Corinthians, it reads like a love letter. A love letter from Paul to a church he cares deeply about. And we find in this section specifically that you are left in this weird place. That Paul says there's actual joy in rejoicing in repentance. How can this be? How can there be joy in repentance? Let's find out together how we might find joy in repentance. Please pay attention as we look at this larger section, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, 
so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because the Spirit has been refreshed by you all. For, what, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affliction, his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're just joining us. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. We've been going through this book of 2 Corinthians. And some of you might be wondering, how can an old book like this, an old letter like this, address the complexity of our lives? More than that, how can it address the complexity of relationships and conflict we see in our lives? Do you know the that relationships are complex, <laughs> that relationships have conflict, can this actually speak to the conflict we experience? Sometimes if I, I deal with a lot of weddings and people that are planning their weddings, and sometimes when I talk to them, they act like the seating chart for their wedding is like a Sudoku puzzle, right? Cousin Margaret can't sit by Uncle Harry, Aunt Sally can sit by Uncle Harry, but she can't be by my sister. But my sister can be by Cousin Margaret. How do we fit this seating chart so that people can be together and we don't have World War III at our wedding? You know, the church that Paul is writing to is dealing with these kind of tensions. It happens in the church. To realize that Paul started 1 Corinthians dealing with issues that were going on in the church in Corinth, southern Greece. He had to deal with a man who was sleeping with his stepmother, incest, and had to address the church of not dealing with the issue. And then, after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he went and visited the church in Corinth, a church he planted, a church he was with for two years. He went and visited them again. And when he visited them, it was called the painful visit, as he explains in 2 Corinthians. Because he realizes the church had not dealt with this issue. And on top of that, the church was now questioning Paul and his credentials and his message. It was not good why it was called the painful visit. 
Paul left discouraged. And afterwards, he wrote a letter that we do not have called the severe letter about them allowing this to happen, them questioning Paul, them going towards other teachers that were giving them a false gospel. And here, 2 Corinthians is a response to hearing how they responded to the earlier letter, the severe letter. You know that knot in your stomach when you think about a painful relationship? Your palm in your face thinking about a wrong in your family? The shaking of your head thinking about someone you have not talked to in a long time in a relationship that has been fractured? Paul knows those feelings. That is the tension that he feels with what is going on in Corinth. The angst of broken relationships. What is Paul's answer? Ghosting? Grinning and bearing it when they gather together? Wisconsin nice? Where we just smile when we know we hate that person's guts? No, he addresses the tension. He addresses what is going on. You see here at the beginning in verse 2, he begins with an imperative. Make room in your hearts for us. We can see that there has been some reconciliation. We're going to learn about how the reconciliation has taken place. But he is longing that they will still be open to him and his fellow co-workers in the gospel. Because he is planning to come and visit them again. And he is preparing them for his visit. And after he gives this imperative, he rapidly speaks about his character and his integrity and his heart towards them. He had wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. His motives are pure. He's not after money or esteem or personal gain like the other super apostles are that we'll hear about later in 2 Corinthians, the others that are trying to corrupt the church in Corinth. And then he says after he's explaining that his motives are pure. He's saying, oh, I'm not trying to say that to condemn you, to like, I'm better than you, to one-up you, to say I'm pious. No. I admit that I am with you and united in Christ, that I too am a sinner. That we are united together in Christ in his death and in his life. I'm not trying to one-up you by talking about my motives being pure. And then he again expounds the idea how this church is his reward. How they have followed Christ and that even in his affliction and even in his suffering, he has found joy in them following God. And then he goes on to how this joy and hope has happened 
even with all the tension that they've experienced. You see, Paul, after he left them in the painful visit, he went to Macedonia, northern Greece. And there, other churches he helped plant, he also continued to experience suffering. Whether it was conflict in the church, whether it was trials, some argue there were times where he was persecuted physically, even to the point close to death. How he's experiencing this pain externally, and then also he's experiencing this internal struggle. Probably from the tension that he's feeling in the church in Corinth and what is going on. And he doesn't have his compatriot Titus there to comfort him. But then he talks about how Titus comes to him in Macedonia. And Titus had gone to Corinth after the severe letter had been written. And then Titus explains to him what has happened in the church in Corinth. That the people in Corinth are mourning and longing and have zeal for Paul of what they have done to him. And because of this, Paul is emboldened and rejoices and is strengthened. And we get this very fascinating look inside of Paul's struggles. I love this. It says, I regret sending it, but I don't regret sending it, you know? He realized, oh, it was hard. It was hard to have that conflict. It was hard to do that thing. He's talking about that tension of conflict that we feel too. It's a hard thing. But he's saying, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it, not because it caused you grief, but because it caused godly grief and repentance. Paul's not ghosting them. He's not cold-hearted. He's involved emotionally with this church. He even says the hard things. My two older girls and I, we watched um, King Richard this week, a movie. It's a movie about Richard Williams. If you don't know Richard Williams, he's the father of Venus and Serena Williams. The famous tennis players, right? Serena Williams, one of the most winningest, and some say the greatest women's tennis player ever. If you were around in the 90s, in the early 2000s, you realize that Richard Williams, the father who taught these girls tennis, was a very complicated figure and much maligned by the media. He would dance at games and had a whiteboard that he would hold things up and messages. He said crazy stuff. But this movie is actually produced by his daughters. And, you know, Richard Williams was maligned by the press and by popular culture and all those things. And the daughters show the sweetness behind their father but also show the struggles in his life. Girls, you can produce a movie about me if you want to. That would be great, yeah. So later on. That's why I'm just, I'm building up to that, right? They interviewed one of the daughters, and she said, it was a love letter to my father that I did this movie. 
that I would show that even through the ups and downs, there was goodness, there was stuff working there. You know, this is a love letter even in the ups and downs. That Paul is telling him about the conflict that he's experienced with them. Do you receive the love letters from people in your life? Do you actually allow yourself to get close enough to people that they might be able to tell you the hard things? Or do you give off this veneer of anger, standoffishness, that you won't allow people to challenge you about something in your life. That you won't let someone confront you about your temper, your drinking, your laziness, your bitterness. I get it. We're Americans. Many of us are baby boomers. We're cautious about authority. No one's going to tell me what to do. No one's going to tell me nothing. And that's sometimes how we think about people in authority in the church. I'm not going to let any elder have a power trip over me. Control over me. You know, all those pastors and those elders, you know what they want? All they want is money. They just want control. Are you willing to be confronted by people that love you? Hear me. Perry and Mark and Luke and David and myself, we are not apostles. <laughs> okay, we are not Paul. But God has given us authority. These men, we pray for you. The majority of our meetings are praying for you. Thinking of you. Longing for God to work in your hearts. We have a longing for people to be reconciled to God, for there be, to be repentance, for there to be godly grief, for the cycles of sin to be done with people here in this church. Are you letting pride get in your way? People confronting you. I love the movie Flight and what this character Denzel Washington plays says you know one the people I need to apologize for or two are those people that were generally trying to help me that I didn't realize some of the people that you're the most angry with could be the people that are generally trying to help you
See, Paul is in this tension. What is the church going to do with a severe letter? And the change that they're going to take is serious. Paul labels it, he's not just writing this to talk about the person that did the wrong, which is probably this man that's sleeping with his stepmom, or writing a letter specifically to talk about the victim. All those things are serious and need to be dealt with. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, says it needs to be dealt with. But he says, the greater thing is, are you going to listen to my message? Which way are you going to go? Are you going to say, well, we can't listen to Paul. We can't hear what he has to say. We are going to side with these super apostles and base life on our performances, our accolades, trying to go away from suffering and hard conflict, not listening to the message from God that comes through Paul. Are they going to go that way? Or are they going to have hearts of repentance? A lot of weight that Paul is feeling is on which way they will fall and the trajectory that they will go, one away from the gospel or towards the gospel. It's amazing that a relational conflict is actually exposing a greater issue of where people will go. God works in that way, so you know that? He works in our relational conflict to expose to us which way we are going to go. Godly grief or worldly grief? For Paul, where they land on godly grief versus worldly grief is serious. See, godly grief for him is salvation. He's been talking about this in 2 Corinthians already. The idea that they would have a heart towards the new covenant, the new promise. That they would be free. That the Spirit be working in their hearts. Well, he says worldly grief, that trajectory leads to death. He talks about that earlier. The old covenant. A hardening of the heart. The flesh. So it begs the question for us. What is the difference between worldly grief, worldly sorrow, what I'll call false repentance, and godly grief, and true repentance? What's the difference? Let's try to explain that. Worldly sorrow, worldly grief, false repentance doesn't go beyond remorse for what has been lost in this world. How can I get back where I was before? How many times do I need to say I'm sorry? How many tears need to come from my face? What kind of penance do I need to do to get back to normal? I got caught. Okay, great. What price do I have to pay to get back to where I was. And Paul is wondering, is the church in Corinth just going to be bitter towards him? 
Is there going to be tension in the relationship? Is there not going to be long-lasting change? Are they not going to be able to hear the true message and be turned towards God? Are they just going to be bitter at him? In the movie Flight, you see this character before he goes to jail. He just wants to get his job back. He rationalizes why he did what he did. He realizes those people, yeah, sure, I got caught, but they don't see the full perspective of what I see, sure. Excuses, blame, all those things take place. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson this week, famous preacher, and he said something that just hit me so hard. He said, with false repentance, you can be sorrowful, you can be full of tears, you can have tons of regret, but you can still be lost and on the way to destruction. What is true repentance? True repentance is realizing I haven't just done wrong against this world and people in this world. I have done wrong against the creator of this world and the creator of me, God himself. That's not simply about getting back to where it was before, but it's actually me changing. My heart being transformed. A change in my very being. I don't simply regret what I've done. I don't simply say I'm going to do better next time. Instead, I'm going to turn to God to be really transformed. It's amazing. In flight, you see he had all these gifts and all these talents and all these skills and all this admiration. But even when all that came to him in true repentance, he was able to say, you know what? I am a sinner. He was able to admit in the depths of his heart, no matter how much good he had done, he was still a sinner. Let me illustrate it even a little bit more. In the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you might know about this one boy, Eustace. Not the nicest kid. And when he's in Narnia, that is still seen. And what comes out is his greed. And in this magic land, he founds, finds a dragon lair that has tons of treasure. And one night he sleeps with the treasure because he wants it so bad. Lewis says, the dragon desire was in his heart. And when he wakes up, he's become a dragon. At first, for Eustace, this is really cool. But then he realizes, being a dragon doesn't let me relate really well to humans. He realizes his loneliness, that he's cut off. And he wants to get rid of it. Well, he runs into the king of the land, Aslan, a lion. And Aslan says, there is a large well with clear water. 
And if you're in there, you'll get better. But you have to undress first. Meaning, get rid of these scales. So Eustace goes to the well. And he is trying hard as he can to scrape off the scales. To take them off. To be healed. Scraping and scraping. And Aslan is there. And here as I read from the voyage of the Don Treader. Then the lion said. You will have to let me do it. And I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was really nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. But after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found out that all the pain had been gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Joy in repentance. Some of us are tearing and tearing and trying to do this false repentance thing to get better. Little do you know that it takes the nails through the hands of Christ to take that burden off. To take your anger, your greed, your hatred, your covetousness, your need for success, your control. It takes him and his pain. Will you let him do that work? You want to know signs of true repentance? Some of you might think, some of you right now are thinking about someone else that needs this. I know how we are. Someone else needs to hear this message. You want to know if you are in a place where you have received true repentance? That you accept the consequences that come with it. You accept the admitting of your sin and what comes with the worldly consequences of it. And you're okay with that. Because you know why? You found a true home in Christ. That no matter what this world gives you the consequences, you know you belong to him. And this world can't give you anything that you can't get from him. That you can actually pay the price of making amends. 
Think about Zacchaeus, right? Paying back all that he stole from others. He did it joyfully. Why? Because he found a treasure that overflows. His relationship with Christ. That actually will change your behavior. Because you realize that you have now union with Christ and the Spirit is in you and you have the power to change. That you don't have to demand people to forgive you for what you've done. Oh, I've done wrong. I'm sorry. You better forgive me now. There better be full reconciliation. No, you'll be okay with them taking their time. Because you've been ultimately forgiven by the king. That when you think about the consequences of your sin and what you've been doing, you don't just blame others for the situation you were in. That you receive the unconditional love from Christ. And because of that, you can see how your sin has put you in the position that you're in. Not simply other people. In college, I finally was surrounded by a true Christian community. One that wrote love letters to me like this. And these, this Christian community came around me and said, Dan, you're a jerk. And my response was tears, sorrowfulness, despair. It oscillated between that and how dare you? This is just who I am. God in his grace went into the depths of my soul and my heart and showed me how I was sinning against him. It was painful. Painful. But then there was swimming and splashing and joy to realize the depths of my sin, but then the greatness of God's love. I'm constantly surprised by Paul. He doesn't end. He boasts in them. He's bragging about these people that have hurt him so badly. He rejoices in them. He has joy in these people. He's confident in them. Listen, he thought they were going to do something different after 1 Corinthians. They didn't. He had to do the painful visit. They didn't. And then he wrote the severe letter. He's confident in these people. How? I think Paul had joy and confidence with the people in Corinth. Because he realized the cure had been administered to them. True repentance. And it was going to take time for the full healing to take place. But the trajectory was right. 
Lewis ends the chapter on Eustace and his healing like this. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Paul did not notice anymore. The cure had begun. The amazing work had been done in these people. And he was able to go back to them and write that theological treatise. He wrote Romans when he was with them. That is astounding to me. One of the greatest books in all of the Bible Theological treaties he wrote when he was with these people. Think, church, of the joy in this reconciliation, in this repentance. Will you allow God to do that in you? Will you allow him to work that deep work in you? For him to pierce your heart, to rip off the scales, so that you can be how he made you to be in relationship with him and then in relationship with each other.